Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jean Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today in this episode is Dr. Satsuki Takahashi and her new book, Fukushima Futures, Survival Stories in a Repeatedly Ruined Seascape. This book was published last month uh, through University of Washington Press. Satsuki is an environmental anthropologist of Japan And this book comes from Satsuki's uh, ethnographical studies about the fishing industry around the Fukushima areas before and after the March 11th earthquake and nuclear power plant meltdown. Um, Welcome, Satsuki. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Um, It's um, a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, So first, can you tell us a bit about yourself? What do you research and teach about? Um, thank you very much. And uh, I'm a professor of cultural anthropology at Hosei University, um, which is located in Tokyo. And for my teaching, um, in addition to uh, freshman seminars and the intro course for sustainability studies, I teach mainly uh, environmental anthropology and anthropology of disasters. And I also teach seminar courses on ethnographic research methods. And for my research, I have been fascinated by um, ocean-human relations in contemporary Japan. And I've done ethnographic research on topics like um, uh, culture of a fishing, a commercial fishing, um, and also marine conservation, coastal development, disasters, futurism, modernization, and also multi-species relationships. Now, that's a quick introduction, but that, that's like that. <laughs> that's a very wide uh, research interest range. Um, what first got you uh, interested in this study of fishing industry and ocean seascape? Oh, thank you very much for asking that. I, when I, whenever I explain myself um, to people who are interested in my research, I often says I've been for a long time. I've been fish geek, but I, I, I was born in a coastless. A prefecture named the uh, Saitama Prefecture. So for me, uh, somebody who was interested in the environment, uh, the ocean was a part of the you know the large scale of the the environmental milieu. But uh, at the same time, it was a foreign to me. Uh, the ocean wasn't something that was close to me. Or my family and I often go to a mountainside for the summer vacation. So the ocean is always kind of like a outside of my 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 hometown so i was interested in uh, studying ocean and ocean creatures as a as a uh, high school student so i went to a, a fisheries universities um, in tokyo so i've been interested in the ocean since i was at college and then when i choose to go to a phd program um, i was interested in discovering more of the human side of the fishing so um, i um, studied with environmental anthropologists um, in Rutgers university and ever since then i still fascinated by the all the ocean human relationship that's um 
uh, living in Tucson, Arizona, in the middle of the desert, I kind of uh, relate to that fascination about the ocean. Um, well, this book, however, is not all about the fun that we can have um, around the ocean. And for listeners who may not be familiar with this incident, what happened in Fukushima? Thanks for asking the question. Actually, uh, um, I found it I found it very interesting to to answer that question, especially because. A more and more college student, even within Japan, because I, I teach Japanese oh, the, the students who go to a, a, a school in, in Japan. And I I have to often explain what happened in Fukushima to those to students in Japan as well. And mainly because it happened almost 13 years ago in 2011. So for example, like for the freshman year students right now, Back then, there were five. So for them, it's 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 really happened a long time ago. For me, it's not that long time ago. It happened in the middle of my research, but um, so I have to explain to um, well, to students. So um, I'm happy to explain the the quick overview of the, what happened um, back in 2011. So it's a very quick overview, uh, if I may. It happened the the disaster itself was happened in 2011 as a triple disaster, which means in a combination of an earthquake, tsunami, and a nuclear accident. And the earthquake and the tsunami struck the long stretch of a coastal area in northeastern Japan. And the tsunami especially hit hard in Tohoku area, which includes Fukushima. And Fukushima is a one of the, the Tohoku area. And along the disaster struck coast areas, um, there are a few nuclear power plants. The Japan has a lot of a nuclear power plants, and that all of them are located along the coastal line, um, including the Tohoku areas. And in Fukushima, there are um, at least the two major ones. And one of them in Fukushima is called the, the Fukushima Daiichi Nuclear Power Plant. It went to, um, it caused uh, the, the tsunami caused the, the nuclear meltdown and the, due to the loss of a power and emergency, uh, a loss of emergency safety measures. So as a result, um, a large amount of the nuclear substances were released into the air as well as the ocean, which forced over 150,000 people to evacuate from their own hometowns and it caused the farmers and the fishing families unable to grow their produces or catch fish for multiple years due to the, the nuclear contamination and the consumer's hesitation for purchasing the pro uh, products from Fukushima and the neighboring um, regions. And that's kind of a, a quick overview that I often give to my students, but I understand that the listeners might be from a more diverse backgrounds. So if you think I should add anything more, please let me know. But that's kind of a quick overview of what happened in Fukushima back in 2011. Thank you. And uh, conveniently, Netflix just released a mini series this year um, talking about uh, what happened immediately after the nuclear plant meltdown. So if anyone's interested, uh, you can check that out. But uh, your book focuses on this um, lesser, I guess, um, known um, aspects of the aftermath of the nuclear um, power plant meltdown. Um, and your primarily examine the oceans and fisheries around this area. Can you give us an overview of this uh, this Joban seascape that you uh, research about and its fishing industries before the disasters? And um, can you talk about how the disasters shaped or transformed your research since it happened in the middle of your research? Right, right, right. Um, so uh, let me answer the question. There are uh, a few questions. So let me start with, uh, should I start with the, the what was the, the fishing industry like before the disaster and the overall um, history of the fishing community and in industry in the, the Fukushima and the neighboring areas? So the... Um, the coastal fishing industry in Japan has a long history, and the Joban Sea, which it combines the coastal area of Fukushima and uh, Ibaraki, which is directly south of the Fukushima prefecture, and the Ibaraki prefecture is 
um, north of um, Chiba Prefecture, which is a part of the Kanto area um, next to uh, Tokyo. So the, the Ibaraki is not that far from uh, Tokyo, and the Fukushima is right above um, Ibaraki, if you can picture the, the, the northeastern Japan map, and that's it's located. And the Joban Sea has been long known as the good uh, fishing ground, and because it's a, it's a close proximity to Tokyo, the coastal fish products, uh, the fresh fish coming from Fukushima and Ibaraki have been highly regarded as high quality fish. It's the big and then also the fresh because, you know, the um, these days the transportation system is so good so that the, even the fish from like Hokkaido or the Okinawa can uh, reach to a Tokyo uh, main fish market without any, you know, too much delay. But uh, for a long time, um, the uh, fishing communities in Ibaraki and Fukushima, uh, which is overall called uh, the Joban area, the Joban Sea, the fish products have been considered as one of the um, premier fish products um, at the uh, main fish market in Tokyo. And as far as the, the fishing industry goes, um, this is more like a, the Japanese uh, coastal fishing industry 101, but let me start with that uh, just to, to give you a little more detail the, um, uh, the history of it. But like as, a, as a big picture of the, the coastal fishing industry as a history, in Japan, the coastal fishing industry has um, a longer history. It, used to be um, uh, just considered uh, the small scale, more like artisanal uh, fishing before the World War II. It was small scale and then they used rowboats and, and wooden boats um, unless um, the some of the fishing community has um, a very wealthy fish manager. But otherwise, the, it's mostly a family-based small-scale fishing but um, it got expanded in the post-World War II period as part of the Japan's um, national government's uh, uh, effort to modernize the industry. And um, as for one of the reasons is the, the, because of the sh uh, food shortage at the end of the, uh, the World War II or the, after the, the end of the immediate after the World War II, they needed the uh, uh, animal protein. So the coastal fishing industry was one of the target for the, the Japanese government to expand so that the Japanese citizen can access to uh, the animal um, protein. So the, um, the Coastal fishing became um, a target for the modernization, for the uh, the reason of the modernization that, uh, around that time was uh, uh, more of a mechanization. The idea of a modernization focused on the mechanized the mechanization of the fishing boats and equipment so that they can catch more fish to sell, meaning that more fish will be available for um, general customers. So the, the fishing industry, coastal fishing industry became more expanded due to the modernization efforts by the government during the 1950s and 60s. And as a side note, uh, 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 when people often hear the fishing industry, they might think about the largest scale fishing industry. And the Japan has a, uh, a both largest scale fishing industry and a small scale coastal fishing industry. The largest scale offshore or the deep sea fishing industry have been modernized ever since like Meiji. So the that's a little different, a lot different from a coastal fishing. So the, when you listen to me explaining the, the history of a coastal fishing, um, just to be uh, keeping in mind that the coastal fishing industry has a, a different historical uh, shifts from the deep sea um, fishing. So the, for the coastal fishing, it also, well, not welcome, the modernization shifted, the discourses of modernization shifted after 1970s. So the 1950s and 1960s, the modernization focused on the mechanization of fishing boats and equipment. And when the time period enters the 1970s and 80s and 90s, when the worldwide um, environmental movement uh, becoming more of the scene. And Japan um, has been, uh, Japan was also uh, trying to become one of the first 
uh, nation, uh, one of the members of the First Nation during then, you know, the, the, the economic development of Japan trying to catch up with the Western countries. So 1970s through 1990s, Japan, the Japanese government shifted the idea of a modernization from just a mechanization, which uh, focused on, um, you know, increasing the yield to um, development of a scientific marine conservation to show we're not just the catching the fish, you know, we understand scientifically how the, the marine ecosystem works and we do not catch as many as uh, possible because that's not uh, modern fishing would do. So the, during that period, uh, modernization shifted from mechanization to uh, marine conservation, development of uh, scientific marine conservation. And then the the kind of idea of a modernization shifted again um, in the beginning of the 2000s um, to focus on development of a neoliberal market-oriented efficient businesses, which I talk about in that book as well. But besides the historical modernization efforts, the coastal fishing industry in, in the early 2000s was going through some um, challenges as well, including declining resources, even though, um, you know, uh, the uh, there are a lot of efforts to to um, establish marine conservation, but there are still um, concerns about declining the resources. There's um, complicated reasons. There's some um, overcatchings involved, but also the uh, temperature rise or the, the global warming um, influences as well. So the decline in resources has been one of the uh, main challenges that they face. And then also fish prices has not been increased, even though the increase of a fishing costs and especially a fuel cost has been increasing so much. So the, the you know, the uh, benefit or the um, uh, revenue for the fishing families has been challenging if the fish price goes up then they can you know the make up for the all the increase in the fishing cost but it's not the case so the uh, when i did my the dissertation research um the field work back in 2006 and 2007 a lot of um anxieties that they the fishing families just shared with me were the um declining income because of the stagnant fish prices um the while the um the fuel cost has been increasing so there are some challenges um as well the the people talked about the um before the disaster struck in 2011 so the when the disaster struck in 2011 it was it was um it was considered as a um, unprecedented disaster, but also for the fishing communities, it was a huge challenge for them to to recover from the their struggling to survive um, before the disaster. But after the disaster, because of the contamination of the fish, a lot of the fishing community in Fukushima um, could not go back to the sea for um, commercial fishing, and even for the uh, fishing community in Ibaraki they also had to go through a fishing moratorium for um often um um the so the and then and also the uh right now the um the one of the biggest issues that they are facing right now is the releasing of the uh, treated uh, nuclear waste water so the it's like I um I'm glad you said that the book is enjoyable to read, but the the uh, subject itself is it's not easy one to to digest even for the, not even for the especially for those people who I study with. So I was I was interested in that how the fishing families um talk about how to survive in such um the seascape that has been um very difficult for them to 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 survive with but they never talk about the giving up or you know leaving the fishing industry so i was interested in how they think about themselves as a fishing families and then also how the disaster um affected them 
um, their identity as the fishing communities and how they keep their um, maintain their hope to to survive because especially for those fishing communities in Fukushima, the the fishing moratorium lasted for ten years. They just recently re reopened the fishing, but also the the issue of the um, the releasing of the uh, treated wastewater or the um, still. Um, concerning with the the consumers are worried, um, you know the strain, the, per, the, the they're worried over the um, any health issues that might involve the with the products from um, Fukushima. So there are a lot of um, ongoing challenges that they go through. So I was interested in the, how they talk about the the survival and then also what they actually do with the well. Well, survive survival so um as a last question you raised um how the disaster transformed or, or shaped my research um it it did a lot but um but i actually uh, finished my dissertation research before the disaster so i was in an interesting um position i had the dissertation research before the disaster. So it was nothing to do with the disaster, that 2011 disaster, even though I, I witnessed some other disaster before the disaster, like a tanker accident. So I, I was already studying the topic of a survival before the 2011 uh, triple disaster. And then um, I conducted a post-2011 disaster research. So I was, as I was working with the, um, the fishing community in the aftermath of 2011, I was kept thinking about like what, the 2011 disaster actually means to those people and people who try to survive as a fishing families and what actually changed. The people talk about the 2011 disaster as unprecedented, but to me, as soon as I uh, began my the post-disaster study in 2011, when I joined the meeting of the government's um, reconstruction um, uh, discussion, I felt immediately the modernization, the, again, the conversation of a modernization uh, pops up in the, the reconstruction uh, uh, meeting. So to me, even though people talk about the the magnitude of a magnitude of a triple disaster as unprecedented, but how the government and then also the people in the coastal area, their treatment of the disaster and the reconstruction is not all that different from the pre-disaster period. So I was very intrigued by the continuation uh, from uh, before the disaster to after the disaster. But there are a lot of uh, changes as well. Like, you know, they never um, dealt with actual contamination of uh, nuclear substances in the ocean or in the fish body themselves. But the overall discussion of a modernization, the endless um, pursue of a modernization as a way to um, reconstruct the disaster affected area, it felt it's not that foreign to me, um, the remembering of what happened before the disaster. So I would say the disaster itself did not transform my research, but kind of expanded uh, my research, if that makes sense. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. Absolutely. And you mentioned a lot of good points. Uh, but I, since uh, we're talking about modernization, and I'm also very interested in this topic, um, I want to go uh, into more detail about this one. Um, so throughout the book, you use the contrast of modernization and futurism to portray how the fishing families were stuck in between. Um, for the Japanese government, when they made all these great plans, they thought they were modernizing the, the fishing industry, the, the boats or the techniques. But what did this modernization um, mean for the, um, let me reword that, in the eyes of the fishing families, um, of those people who actually had to go out there in the ocean to fish, how did they take this modernization? How did they understand it? And um, how did they like it? That's a great question. I was wondering about that too when I was living with those fishing families. I did not literally live with them. I had my own apartment, but I visited the, the fishing port almost every day unless the weather um, cancels the, the fishing trip. I still was going out with, uh, you know, hanging out with uh, the fishing uh, families, even when the fishing trip wasn't scheduled. But I was interested in, the, so the modernization, when I used the term in my book, I, I used specifically how the Japanese government talk about it as kindaika. So the kindaika is the Japanese term for modernization. And that term comes up a lot in the the government documents like in order to modernize the fishing no 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 um the, let me rephrase that the in order to uh in order to help the fishing community which they frame as backward people to join the uh, modern japan well, they, they, my interpretation is that the Japanese government sees the Tokyo and the central cities as already modernized the, the areas of Japan and the people who live in those areas are modernized. But those are people who are living in the coastal areas or farming sections, there might need to be help to be modernized to join the main, main part of the Japanese city. Uh, citizen which are already modernized so that they use a lot of um, uh, words to to describe that the government needs to help the backward fishing communities to to catch up with the, the city people in Japan and the modernization the uh, the kindaika the term comes up in the in the documents and then also the kindaika comes up in a conversation among the bureaucrats when they uh, when they have a meetings or the when they uh, talk about the fisheries um, issues with me but the kindaika doesn't the the modernization as a term doesn't come up in the regular conversation among the fishing families but it it kind of interestingly shows up as their own interpretation of the modernization because the fishing communities often talk to our Japanese government or the fisheries extension um, station agents um, in Japan and many other countries. They have um, a system the the uh, the government uh, creates extension um, 
station, the farming or the fishing, and they have a scientist or a scientific oriented bureaucrats who help the fishing communities or farming community to modernize. They those agents teach them the cutting edge technologies or the ideas. They try to you know trans. Not they trying to interpret the one of my informants who was um, at that time the fisheries agent who told me his work as interpreter or the the puppeteer. Um, he explained that the the because the fishing communities of people might not be able to understand the difficult government um, document words. So including the Kindaika. So the, one of his um, main job is to, to digest the term into an easier everyday language so that the uh, people of a fishing community can understand the why they need to be modernized and the how they need to be modernized and the how they need to change their minds to become a more modern fishing communities. So I was interested in how the fishing from fishing communities as how do they listen to it? They, you know, they they have their own pride. They they have their, you know, the um the the history of, of being a fishing families. And and it was interesting to me to to hear um how they kind of understand or they're trying to even use some um, some degree that in some situations the fishing communities understand if they listen to the government they can get the subsidies so they they kind of strategically use like a, yeah we need to modernize and we need the money so like give us some money so that I can get more uh, upgraded fishing gears or the um or and in some occasion like a conservation I was mostly interested in the conservation before the disaster especially because um the in theory the marine conservation would be economically um beneficial for fishing communities but not always because uh, if they can fish and if the resources uh, the fish species are not in danger of extinction why not just to catch as much as as possible especially it's a seasonal migration involved so it's harder for them to just not to catch or to catch a little and trying to catch well you know every uh, month for this amount it's, it's hard for them to do so because the anchovy might only migrate into their own fishing areas for like a few weeks and if they don't catch it they they miss the um, a chance of getting a good income so it's harder for them uh, to me it sounded harder for me to to believe the conservation efforts is always make sense for them so i was interested in how they how some of them, how some of the, the fishing communities are more keen to be joining into the, you know, team of the uh, developing the scientific conservation um, schemes and some others uh, refuse to do so. And from the government's point of view, uh, for those fishing communities who do not follow the government's modernization uh, efforts, they're considered as a backward. And for those fishing communities who listen to the, the government, they're considered as a good example of modernization. But from um, the fishing community's point of view, they, they have their own reason why they want to follow the government's uh, modernization scheme or not to follow the modernization scheme. And the um, one of the things that I found very interesting was um, you know, when the fishing communities follow the government's the suggestion on the modernization scheme. Um, for example, when I was conducting my research back in um, early 2000s, the modernization idea was to develop a neoliberal uh, uh, fish businesses. And I was living in two, I, I conducted in a two different uh, two uh, actually um, neighboring fishing communities. The one community was in uh, declined the the offer, or they're in um, uh, um uh they did not want to follow the the suggestion. The other one wanted to follow the suggestion. The ones that wanted to follow the suggestion of um developing the fish business, they're the ones who were more vulnerable at that point for the survival. So for them. 
the modernization wasn't really the reason for them to follow the modernization scheme. It was for them to survive. It was a survival um, strategy to follow the government's um, suggestion on the developing the vending um, business. Uh, does that make sense? I mean, I was talking a little bit too much, so I'm, I wasn't sure if I answered your question correctly. Yeah, totally. But... It's absolutely fascinating. It almost reminds me of the narrative that, um, well, the same story kind of happened in the Meiji period when the same idea of modernization was brought up, but a lot of people didn't understand or they didn't really care what uh, modernization mm -hmm. means, actually. So that's um that that's a quite interesting parallel um that I saw in the part about uh, modernization Absolutely. and the and the trouble that they actually um caused for the fishing industry. Um, but I was actually uh, very intrigued about this um chapter discussing the women's vending business. Can you uh give us a brief overview of this part? Sure, I'll be happy to. So, well, the one of my chapter which focused on the before the disaster is the chapter on the uh, women of the fishing communities who are trying to develop um, the fishing fish vending uh, business, the small fish vending business as a part of their effort to add the additional income to their uh, family um, revenue. So the, the at that time, as I um, mentioned earlier, the the idea of a modernization the Japanese government trying to introduce into the fishing community, the how the uh, modern fishing families should be imagined as the the so this has happened after mechanization as the uh, development of um, a conservation. The early two thousand was okay. Okay, you do the modernize. You have to modernize the skill uh, skill set and the uh, uh, the uh, fish boats and everything, and the, you understand the conservation. But now you have to understand that you cannot anymore just trying to survive by catching the fish because you need to come up with a better plan to earn the business the uh, uh, earn the money especially around that time as i mentioned also the earlier that one of the challenge was the stagnant in the fish price um while the the cost of the fuel is increasing so the income for the fishing families is shrinking and the shrink income of a fishing families is one of the biggest concern for the coastal fishing industries and then also that um, linked to the another challenge of a decline in the population of the fishing communities and the Japanese government had been helping you know the um, increasing uh, subsidies uh, for them to survive. It's interesting that the fishing community or the fishing industry is a, one of those um, industries been for a long time it's been described as a declining industry, but it never disappears. And this is one of my colleagues uh, mentioned to me, and which it makes sense. You know that it's always declining, but never disappear, and it never disappears because of the Japanese government always trying to help the survival of the industry. But because of the neoliberal turn, the Japanese government also entered in the early two thousand. So it's not like a cutoff of the Japanese government from subsidies to the, the communities, but they use neoliberal narratives to, to encourage, encourage, I don't know if encourage is the right word, but, but from, from a government perspective, they, they probably use the term, they want to encourage fishing communities to, to be able to survive by coming up with a, um, a, a strategy to, to create additional income for themselves. And one of the uh, strategy to do so is to sell their own fish by themselves. Because in the um, fishing industry, they often they catch a fish and then they sell their fish to a middleman or the wholesaler, and the wholesaler sell the fish to the the main fish market or something. So the for a long time, the fishing communities their main job was catching the fish, because the selling the fish is another you know, the world of a business. And then also it's a very difficult ones to do so. But from the government suggestion, based on the government suggestion, you know, they 
they're not suggesting they should sell all their fish by themselves, but they need to come up or at least they need to have the mindset that they have to survive commercially um, with neoliberal uh, mindset or the, uh, they use a jikosekinin or the self um, responsibility as very neoliberal term to um, to describe that the Japanese government often uses the the you, in order to survive you need to be responsible for your own survival by coming up with the fish vending business so that at that time the fish vending business they didn't introduce that uh, a lot to um uh, men because the men were the uh, most of the but uh, there are uh, women fishers as well but mainly the men are the ones who catch fish by going to the fishing trip and the women have been um responsible for selling the fish you know uh, uh, sorting the fish after the the, the fishing boat was a return and they do all the rest of the work. And so the, the, for the government, they targeted those women to be able to, um, to uh, practice the neoliberal reform of the fishing and the modernization. So they focused on the women's association of a fishing collapse. And the uh, particular fishing communities that I was working with, they were struggling with uh, surviving in the aftermath of the disaster of the tanker accident. They they were they're really struggling to to survive and coming up with a um, a strategy to to survive, especially um, the, some of the available fish species weren't available um, after the disaster um, ended, the, the tanker accident um, receded. So they were in the position, um, nothing but listening to the government's suggestion was, was one of the survival um, uh, method for them to come up. So uh, there are 12 women, most of the elder women or the middle-aged women, uh, not the young ones, um, who were uh, who decided to to uh, tag up with the um, fisheries agents to to uh, develop a small fishing business, and they they did successfully at the end. And but I use that story um, to to kind of uh, allow us to to see the how the the modernization be interpreted uh, by the the local fishing families and especially among women. It's not their uh, the modernization is not their main goal, obviously, but it was uh, survival um, survival skills for them to. To grab as um, um, uh, survival um, me not mechanism, survival um, options um, to to grab on to. So that was the chapter of. Um, so I'm glad that um, I'm glad to, to hear that you find it interesting. I did. I mean, I, I find a lot of the uh, the the aspects you mentioned very um, intriguing, and I guess for the last question, I want to focus on uh, what the government did or what the government tried to do after the um, disaster, when the um, central government and local governments also developed plans to revitalize the area. So, how did the fisheries respond to the new projects like? Uh, wind farms, as you mentioned um, in your book. How successful were these projects, actually? Um, great question. Thank you very much. So the, the, the later chapters that I focused on in my book is uh, mainly in Fukushima. And around the, this uh, new project was introducing, uh, introduced in 2012 and was put in, into a practice in 2013, which was a, a floating wind farm a project, which is funded by the central government and welcomed by the local um, government of Fukushima. But at first, the... Um, uh, for those of people who are not familiar with the wind energy um, industry, the the coastal wind energy, the ocean wind energy is usually posted on 
uh, on uh, onto um, the bottom of the ocean close to the shoreline but this project is floating so floating is like offshore it was pro it was the project which was uh, um put it into practice in 23 kilometers from the coastal line of the Fukushima, which was located right outside of a 20 kilometer um, uh, radius from the damaged nuclear power plant, because they could not uh, um, uh, uh, place any infrastructure within the evacuation zone, which is could be extended to the, the coastal areas or the off to the shore. So it was placed right after the, the 20 kilometer evacuation zones so that they can um, have easy access, not easy access, but that's safe in terms of the, the nuclear substances, well, which is not, uh, there's some questions too, but um, in terms of um, the uh, placement, um, it was okay to do so. So the, the floating at Winter Farm was cutting edge. So the Japanese government wanted to use this opportunity of uh, the reconstruction from the 2011 uh, disaster to be another modernization um, opportunity. So the, the, the um, right now as well as um, back in 2011, the Japanese government has been worried about the losing the, comp the world competition against China, which is raising in terms of the wind energy and the environmental technology. So that for Japanese government, we might not be able to win against China for um, inland wind energy or the, the solar panel, but we might be able to win by, I shouldn't be laughing, but it's it, it's kind of very interesting to how the Japanese government idea of a modernization is formulated within this international discussion, but this floating wind farm was the cutting edge Japan um, team. Uh, it was formulated by the consortium was all formulated by the Japanese National University as well as the Japan-based corporations in order to just decide this is the cutting edge um, floating wind energy technology that Japan can produce. And they are doing the the, the one of the, the other point was they are doing the experimental uh, project in Fukushima, you know, so that they can uh, sell it as a renewable energy project that uh, may be able to replace after the um, disaster of a nuclear power plant. So the Japanese government was putting into a lot of effort into uh, developing the floating wind energy. And the, from the local government, it was very welcome. So the, the, the Fukushima government, this is, might be an opportunity for them to revitalize their disaster-affected area, and new you know, the energy industry that they can develop. Um, from fishing communities' perspectives, it was mixed bag because the floating wind energy, even though it's not posted onto the um, the ground of the ocean, the, the bottom of the ocean, it's still floating. And because they cannot just float in the round from one place to another, they have to be in a place even though it's floating. So they have a chain that connecting from the, the bottom of the floating the, uh, the infrastructure to the bottom of the ocean. So the, the fishing fleets are not going to be able to fish um, within the certain proximity from the the uh, energy station, so for the some fishing uh, fleet, uh, including like a, a dredgers, the the um, the bottom trawler who needs to troll on the bottom of the ocean, the even though it's a floating, the floating wind energy is a still obstacle for them to to fish uh, for their fishing. So the, those fishers were opposed to the idea, but some other fishers thought, um, including the ones that I introduced in my book, the some other fishers saw it as um, opportunity to coexist because at that, that time they weren't able to, to fish. There was in the middle of a long, um, at that time they couldn't even see the end of the fishing moratorium. So if the fishing moratorium was, you know, um, it lasts for a decade or two decades, they 
they have to find out how to survive as a fishing families. They cannot. They don't want to quit. They said they didn't want to quit. So the some of the those fishermen who saw the floating wind of energy uh, might be opportunity for them to survive as a fishing families. So they mentioned okay, the wind energy might be an obstacle, but they might be able to help uh, some uh, fishing uh, fleets by um, developing like a. Um, well, eco tours um, in addition to a small scale fishing. So the, they they saw some uh, hope in the, the the development of the the wind energy uh, project, but the wind energy project itself was canceled after um, almost ten years. And uh, right now, the the actual they they built the three different kinds of the uh, the floating wind farm. But they were all removed from areas because of the um, the cutoff of the budget from the government. The Japanese government are still interested in developing uh, floating wind energies, but they're doing elsewhere other than the Fukushima. There a lot more politics involved, and it might be we don't we might not have um, um, enough time to explain. But um, Japanese government removed the project entirely after almost ten years, and uh, so the the people of um, um, Fukushima as well as especially of fishing communities, um, kind of like a left out from the uh, cancellation of the project of the wind energy. Thank you. It's just really, um, I think it's really important to realize how much um, challenges that the fishery um, fisheries were put into um, when a lot of actually, you can see how the this uh, wind energy campaign was working for Japan. Well, a lot of people were looking at Japan, um, looking up to Japan as an example for this kind of um, conservation of fish or use of um, wind energy. But as your book portrays, um, the Fisher families are kind of the ones that are stuck in between this nice vision of the government and the hard situation of the ocean after the disaster. So I guess that's my way of saying thank you for uh, writing this wonderful book and for your time um, on this channel with us today. Thank you so much for the, the time and, and the fun conversation with me. It was very pleasure to chatting with you, especially talking about the modernization. It's a rare chance for me to, to talk about the modernization with some uh, historians. So thank I, you I very much. Our, thank you. Thank you. And I hope our listeners will find this whole discussion about modernization interesting as well. And how uh, how modernization shapes or changes lives of um, those who are along the oceans of um, the Fukushima areas. Um, if you're interested, please make sure to check out this new book, Fukushima Futures, Survival Stories in a Repeatedly Ruined Seascape by Dr. Satsuki Takahashi. This book is currently available in paperback and hardcover. Stay tuned for our next episode and goodbye for now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.